Our second Bible reading is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And that is on page 11 in the service program. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please do leave your service program open so we can keep looking at that passage during the sermon. Let's bow our heads now and pray for God to teach us as we study his word. Psalm 119 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Father Almighty, we have to admit that by nature we're in the dark and we're simple. So we pray that your words would be unfolded faithfully in this sermon. And as that happens, would you give us light and understanding to help us follow Jesus? Amen. Every miner dreads a cave-in, filling the mine's underground passageways with earth and rubble and trapping miners far below the surface. On the 5th of August 2010, that's what happened at the San Jose mine in northern Chile. At the time of the cave-in, there were 33 miners, 2,300 feet below ground. That's 500 feet further below ground than Manhattan's tallest skyscraper reaches above ground. The miners had no way of contacting the outside world. Their meagre supplies allowed enough for one meal every two days and that meal consisted of two spoonfuls of tuna, a sip of milk, a bite of cracker, and a morsel of peach. They were still alive, but their experience could be described as death within life. 
They lacked so many of the things that make up what we think of as life. In the 17 days before the outside world made contact with them, the miners must often have thought to themselves, even though I'm alive, I'm dead. And yet, as I expect you know, 10 weeks after they were trapped, those 33 miners were raised up to live again. The Chilean miners went from death to life while still alive. From death to life while still alive. And it's like that with Christians, according to today's Bible passage. Today's Bible passage teaches something different from the well-known Christian truth that after death, Christians will rise to live forever. That's right. That's true. We praise God for that truth. Hallelujah. But this passage teaches us that there's rising from the dead that happens in this life. And this isn't the only New Testament passage to make that point. Like those Chilean miners, we've been lifted up from death to life while still alive. Take a look at the start of today's Bible passage on page 11. It says, and you were dead. Then halfway through the passage in verses 4 and 5, Paul says, but God made us alive. You were dead. But God made us alive. In John chapter 5, Jesus himself says something very similar. He says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes has crossed over from death to life. Both Jesus and Paul teach that there's death within life. And they both teach that through faith, a person is lifted up from that death within life to live again. So new life isn't something that's only experienced in the world to come. It's something experienced here in this world too. And this is a truth we need to grasp hold of. We're not just waiting for new life beyond this world, although we're certainly looking forward to that. Christians also experience new life in this world and that's what we'll be thinking about in this sermon. The rest of the sermon will be divided into two. We'll look first at verses 1 through 3, and then at verses 4 through 10. The heading for the first section is deservedly dead. Deservedly dead. As we've already seen, verse 1 begins with the striking words, and you were dead. The believers Paul is writing to had been living, breathing, talking, walking, buying and selling, but all the time they have been dead, Paul says. In what sense were they dead while still alive? The Bible's answer is that they were dead to God. They were unresponsive to God. They had no relationship with him, and so in his sight they were dead. When someone's sleeping deeply in the back seat of the car, we might describe them as dead to the world. It's a common expression for deep sleep because of the sleeper's total unresponsiveness. And similarly, when someone is unresponsive to God, when they live life without reference to him, 
He counts them as dead. If you're a non-Christian here today or perhaps listening online, first of all, thank you very much for listening. Maybe you're wondering why God's view of things is even relevant to you. If God thinks I'm dead, you might be thinking, well, so be it. That's his opinion. In my opinion, I'm very much alive and that's the end of the matter, as far as I'm concerned. But the Bible teaches us that knowing God, being responsive to him, is what makes life truly life. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I have come that they may have life. And later in John's Gospel, Jesus defines that life as knowing God. He says in John chapter 17, Now this is life, that they may know you, the only true God. Knowing God turns existence into true life. Knowing God brings purpose and meaning and power into a person's life. And if you are a non-Christian, perhaps that's not such a foreign idea to you after all. This idea that there's something more than just existing. Something that has always been somehow out of your reach, but you'd love to have it. In the Emmy award-winning show Mad Men, there's a scene where the lead character, Don Draper, says, I've been watching my life. It's right there, and I keep scratching at it, trying to get into it. I can't. So far as I can tell, Mad Men was written by non-Christians about non-Christians, and they're expressing biblical truth through those words. Life without God is something you can watch, it's something you can scratch at, but you won't truly be able to get into it. I have come, Jesus says, that they may have life. Paul goes on to explain how this death within life came to happen. God did not originally create the world as a venue for death within life. Death entered into the world God had created. If you think back to those 33 Chilean miners, they experienced death within life because of an accidental cave-in. They weren't responsible or blameworthy. But the death within life described in verses 1 through 3 is a death that human beings are responsible for. Death entered into the world because our human race sinned. Paul tells his readers at the start of verse 2, you walked in trespasses and sins. In verse 3, he includes himself in that verdict. He says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And at the end of verse 3, he clarifies, in case there was any doubt, that everything he's just been saying applies to the rest of mankind. We're all responsible for the sins and trespasses that cut a person off from God. Ever since the assault on the Capitol that took place on January the 6th last year, the Justice Department has been tracking down and prosecuting the people who took part in it. And many people have had to plead guilty because video footage shows them in the act 
of trespassing on US government property and committing crimes there. One lawyer named Albert Watkins, who's represented several January 6th defendants, has said, it's hard to defend somebody when there's video footage of your client being where he's not supposed to be. We're all in a similar position to those defendants. We may not have sinned against our society as badly as they did, but today's Bible passage tells us we've all walked in trespasses and sins. God has the divine equivalent of video footage showing us in the act of sinning. The human race is responsible for the breakdown in relationship between ourselves and God. We're deservedly dead. Towards the end of verse 3, Paul describes human beings as children of wrath, sometimes translated as objects of wrath. The human sin that disrupts and spoils the world makes God angry with us. By nature, left to our own devices, without God's help, we're objects of God's wrath and deservedly so. It's almost time to move on to the second section of the passage from verse 4 to the end, and I hope we're longing to move on to it, straining to move from death to life. But we mustn't overlook the other factors involved in our sin in addition to our own wrong desires. In verse 2, Paul mentions this world, meaning the culture surrounding people, the human society people find themselves in, which so often sets a person in motion down wrong paths, pushing them down wrong paths. Also in verse 2, Paul mentions the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All the way through the Bible, we're warned about the existence of an evil spiritual being, the devil, who tempts human beings to sin against God. It's helpful to see that the world and the devil are also involved with human sin. It helps us understand how, for example, friendly people in a very pleasant town in Vermont belong in the same group, spiritually speaking, as Russian soldiers engaging in murder and destruction in Ukraine. The people in that town in Vermont seem so different. But from a biblical point of view, it's accurate to say that the difference between them and the Russian soldiers is they haven't been incited to evil by the world and the devil to the same extent as those Russian soldiers. It's been said that human nature is like a pool of water. It may look clear and clean, but if you get a stick and stir it up, the mud starts swirling around. Looking at verse 2, we see that the world and the devil operate like sticks poking about in the pool, stirring up the mud. But the mud is already there at the bottom. Paul says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Those wrong desires come from within us. The world and the devil have a lot to work with, if you see what I mean. We all know what it's like to find a wrong desire in our heart 
a desire we're ashamed of, but can't easily remove. We're deservedly dead. We're deservedly objects of God's wrath. Well, let's press on to the second section of the passage, verses 4 through 10. The heading for this second section is lovingly lifted, lovingly lifted. Verse 4 begins with the short word, but. Linguists call certain words transition words. They control the movement from one thought to another thought. And one category of transition words is adversative transitions, words such as but. However, yet, nonetheless, adversative transitions are words that introduce a fight back against what has come before. The Bible scholar John Stott describes the but at the start of verse 4 as a mighty adversative. It signals that the tide of verses 1 through 3 has been turned in human history. It signals that the tide of verses 1 through 3 can be turned in a person's life. It's a mighty adversative, that but at the start of verse 4, and it depends utterly on the very next word, God. The ESV Study Bible says this about those two words together, just when things look the most desolate, Paul utters the greatest short phrase in the history of human speech, but God. I hope those two words are ringing in your ears. But God, but God. They're a summary of the passage. They're a summary of this sermon, but God. And yet Paul, of course, doesn't stop with those two words. He goes on to explain what God has done, why God has done it, and how it should impact our daily lives. We'll use those three questions to guide us through the rest of this section, verses 4 through 10. First, what is it that God has done? The critical action is in the middle of verse 5. Paul tells his readers that God has made us alive together with Christ. Believers are no longer trapped in death within life. We've been made alive. We have the life that is truly life. In fact, we have the same life, spiritually speaking, that Christ has. We're as alive to God as Christ is. Now, Paul's shorthand for made us alive together with Christ, is you have been saved. You can see that shorthand at the end of verse 5 and also in verse 8. For Paul being made alive together with Christ is another way of talking about salvation. And just a few verses after this passage, later in chapter 2, Paul reminds his readers that they have been saved by the blood of Christ. But God wasn't easy for God to do. But God wasn't a simple case of flicking a switch, pushing a button. But God called for the crucifixion of God himself 
in the person of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Jesus' death on the cross brought us life because as he died, he took our place, receiving the punishment we deserved. He took our sins upon himself with the result that he experienced spiritual death. He became alienated from God. That's why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, deserted me, abandoned me? Remember verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. On the cross, Jesus was similarly dead because he made other people's trespasses and sins his own. It's because Jesus died our death that we can live his life. Well, since it's God who has turned the tide of sin and death and wrath through Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us that Paul doesn't leave any room for human boasting. He says in verses 8 and 9 that this salvation is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our part in salvation is simply to depend on what Jesus has done, to trust in him. That's what is meant by the word faith in verse 8. Reliance, trust, dependence. We're on the receiving side of salvation, not the performance side. God does the saving. Even our faith is given to us, according to verse 8. It is part of God's gift. We're thinking about what God has done to turn the tide, and if you've been a Christian for a long time, you'll be wonderfully familiar with God's gift of salvation through faith in Jesus. But you may well be unfamiliar with the teaching we find in verse 6. This is part of what God has done, and yet it's something Christians don't often talk about or think about. Verse 6 tells us that God hasn't only made us alive together with Christ, he's also, quote, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You thought you were sitting in the triad theatre, didn't you? And yes, you're right, you are. But according to verse 6, if you're trusting in Christ, the triad isn't the only place where you're sitting. You're also seated with Christ in heaven. Paul can say that in verse 6 and really mean it because of our union with Christ. Believers are one with Christ, spiritually united with him. That's how we can sit where he sits in heaven. Later in Ephesians, Paul will compare the oneness of Christ and the church with the oneness of a husband and wife. Biblically speaking, marriage makes a man and a woman one flesh, one unit. As a result, there's a sense in which a husband and wife are together even when they're physically apart, thanks to their status as one unit, one flesh. Think of those famous words of Jesus, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And that's how it is with Christ and the church. 
he and his people have been joined together. Where he is, we are. Where we are, he is. That's what Paul means when he says, we're seated with Christ in heaven. It's wonderfully true that there is more to come. When Jesus returns, we'll be with him physically, not just spiritually. But that will enrich the salvation we've received. It won't change the essential life of it. Verse 6 should persuade us that the work of salvation is finished. Our salvation is complete and there's nothing we can add to it. We're already raised and seated with Christ in heaven. Let's turn now from what God has done to the second question. Why did God do it? We'll look at this question and the next one more briefly than the first. Paul answers the why question in verse 4. Because of the great love with which God loved us. You can see Paul himself gazing at God's love. Paul doesn't just say because of his great love. He doesn't just say because he loved us. He says because of the great love with which God loved us. I think it's true to say that we can often find it hard to believe that we're loved by other people, even by our nearest and dearest. Perhaps it's because we want to protect ourselves from heartbreak. So we surround our hearts with a tough, protective outer shell. But when God says, I love you, and that is what he is saying in verse 5, verse 4, when God says, I love you, he backs it up with his own blood. Shouldn't that crack your protective shell and get through to your heart? When God says, I love you, he backs it up with his own blood. There's no danger of heartbreak here. God wants us to believe in the reality of his love. Let the love of God break through that tough outer shell around your heart. Find joy in his love. It's so good to go through life knowing that you're loved by God himself, by the creator of this universe. And if you are a non-Christian on the outside looking in, please know that God is lovingly inviting you to receive his love. He's lovingly inviting you to receive his love. You do need to come in. You do need to receive. Those words at the end of verse 3 express the true condition of non-Christian people. But God loves you so much. If you're a non-Christian listening, he loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus so that instead of staying on the outside, you could come in to his love. Isn't it time for you to come inside? Isn't it time for you? to trust in Jesus and enter in to the love of your Creator God. It's something you could do today. Please do it if you haven't yet come in. We thought about what God has done and why he's done it. We'll close with our third question. How should this salvation impact our lives day by day? Paul's answer is in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've seen that we've been raised from the dead. Verse 10 sets out the way of life that we've been raised to live. God has a plan for each one of us. He's prepared good works for us. And with his help, we will walk in those good works. That word workmanship at the start of verse 10 is a rather stodgy English word. The original Greek word behind the English translation is closer to work of art or even masterpiece. God is like an artist standing back and looking with delight on his saved people. You and me and everyone who's been made alive with Christ. And like any artist, God wants others to view his work. Verse 7 says, So that in the coming ages, God might show, show forth, exhibit the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The Tyndale Bible Commentary explains verse 7 like this, The church is to be the exhibition to the whole creation of the wisdom and love and grace of God in Christ. End quote. God wants the creation to see his artistry because it's good for us to see how amazing God is. It's good for us to understand his loving purposes. It's good for us to marvel at his willingness to raise the spiritually dead and his power to raise the spiritually dead. Works of art are usually static, unmoving, but that's not the case with God's saved people. God has prepared good works for us to walk in, we're told in verse 10. In contrast to the trespasses and sins we once walked in, verse 1 and 2. Please note the order of proceedings here. We're not saved by good works, verse 9 says, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But we are saved, according to verse 10, for good works. We're walking works of art, not static, not unmoving, walking works of art. When a Christian walks in sins and trespasses instead of walking in good works, that Christian is rather like one of those Chilean miners closing the curtains, switching on the lamp on his old mining helmet, sitting in that room he's in and limiting himself to two spoonfuls of tuna, a sip of milk, a bite of cracker, and a morsel of peach once every two days. How strange it would be for one of those 33 miners to recreate his death-within-life experience. How strange it is for Christians, God-saved people, his walking works of art, to go back 
to the death within life experience of walking in sins and trespasses. We've been raised for better things than two spoonfuls of tuna, a sip of milk, a bite of cracker and a morsel of peach once every two days, if you see what I mean. Now I found myself thinking as I was preparing this sermon, and you have already may begun to think this yourself, what about the stories of scandals involving the church that we read about? They are true scandals. They are appalling. How can we look at verse 7 so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus and understand that in relation to the scandals involving Christians and the church? What kind of exhibition has the church proved to be? As I was thinking about this, I found it helpful to remember that scandals are newsworthy whereas ordinary faithful Christian living isn't newsworthy. That's never going to make it into a newspaper or onto the TV news. And we need to trust, as we look at verse 7, that the church throughout history, throughout the world, has indeed proved to be God's workmanship. God's work of art, his masterpiece, an exhibition of the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But these verses do stir us up, don't they, to live out this wonderful calling to walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand. Even the good works that we do have been prepared by God in advance. And he's the one who gives us the power to walk in them. Paul is so eager to stress the God-empowered nature of our salvation. Even the good works have been prepared in advance. With his help, we will walk in them. But God... But God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to say to you here and now that you are the one who has done it. We want to echo back to you the teaching of your word but God. Left to ourselves, we experienced only death in life and we deserved it because of our sins and trespasses. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love which caused you to change our situation and turn back the tide. Thank you for the love shown to us in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, through which we are also raised for new life. By your power, would we walk 
in the good works you have already prepared for us. Amen.